the, the Haiti trip was this great reminder to us of something that we talk about, which is the reality that a part of our call here on earth is, to, uh, is in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and our world is to hope and to pray that it looks more like the coming kingdom of God when the sun sets than when the sun rose. And of course, you, you know, hopefully by now, the other part of that that we often talk about, which is praying that we go to bed looking more like Jesus uh, than when we woke up. And that's what we're talking about during this uh, series from now up until Advent begins, which is the question of what does it mean to be shaped more like Jesus? And so uh, in order to kind of start us off or to get into our second week, we're going to look at two different texts this morning. We're going to look at John 3, 16 and 17, and then also the Gospel of Matthew. So let's begin with this most famous of passages from John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says this, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we pray that you would be here with us on this bright day. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand more deeply what it means that you came to this earth and what that love means for us in the ways, Lord, in which we are called to reflect that love. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. So last week, if you were here, um, you, you may recall that we started by um, the sermon series by asking that really kind of pivotal, critical question of why. Uh, the question that oftentimes as we get older, perhaps we ask less and less, but we should not because the question of why is a critical question, uh, especially in a time and a place where we can get so caught up in the what um, that we don't even think about the why. When we're running hither and thither to and fro, it is easy for us to be so distracted that we aren't even exactly sure why it is that we are doing all of these things. And so periodically, we should be asking the question of why, because it serves as a filter for us. Maybe as we think about why, maybe we'll start doing some things less. Maybe we'll start doing some things more. But if nothing else, the question of why should help us to at least begin to do those things that we are already doing with a bit more sense of purpose, with more passion, more joy. And, and we should be asking those questions of why, not just as an individual, but as a church community as well. And, 
And as we've been thinking about that question of why we do what we do, we, what we're going about, or what we, the theme that we keep using is from 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's the passage that we talked about last Sunday. I love the way the message puts it, which is this. It says that our lives are becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. Our lives, as we become more like Jesus, should become brighter and more beautiful. So that as we begin our relationship with Jesus, when we receive his love, that we should slowly continue to grow to look more and more like Jesus. So that's fine, but that begs the next question, which is, okay, great. If we're supposed to be shaped like Jesus, then what exactly was Jesus shaped like? And as I was thinking about, okay, what's a good way for us to kick that off for the rest of this series, I realized, well, well, of course, it's probably best to start with love, right? So maybe you remember uh, the the, the song from 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Does anyone remember that that song? Beloved, let us love one another. Man, this is so awkward. So... (laughs) Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Okay, good. You at least got that part. Because God is love. So that if we want to be shaped like Jesus, then we need to be a people who love. Well, that's great, except for the fact that love is such a big and fuzzy Word. It can be used in great ways. It can be misused in non-great ways, right? So, so what exactly do we mean by love? Because we don't just mean any kind of love. We mean Jesus-shaped love. What does it look like to be shaped like Jesus and to love like Jesus did? And that's why I, of course, wanted to bring in John 3, 16 and 17. There's probably no better passage for understanding what Jesus-shaped love looks like. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What does this tell us? It tells us that Jesus-shaped love, first of all, loves the world. And that secondly, it is sent into the world. In other words, Jesus-shaped love is not content to just kind of sit back within the kind of the recesses of its, of its house or, 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 or in a sanctuary, um, and that it, but that it actually goes out to where people actually are. It finds people to express its love. Isn't that what we see going on here in our story in Matthew? What's going on? There is Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? Is he sitting back in his house? Is he waiting for people he likes to come in so that he can tell them he loves them? No, he is walking along, right? And he sees Matthew and Matthew is there and he's at his tax collection booth. And he looks at him and he says, follow me, right? And what was Matthew doing when Jesus found him? What was Matthew doing? He was working, right? Is that fancy or exciting? No, what was he doing? He was working. He was sitting there doing what probably most of us do, which is 
working, right? I mean, this is not all that much of rocket science. Oftentimes, when it comes to kind of our understanding of how can we reflect love, how can we be witnesses, we think, okay, well, we need a lot of tools, or maybe we need to go across the globe. We can do that there. And we, we forget that while those things are great, it's great to have tools, it's great to go on a mission trip, that more often than not, the place where Jesus-shaped love reveals itself is right where you are, right where you work, right where you live, right where you play. All of these things that it meets you, Jesus-shaped love meets people right where they are. Geographically, it meets them right there. Not, well, when they come into the church, then we can love them. No, no, no. As you are going about your life, Jesus-shaped love looks for ways to be expressed. But Jesus-shaped love doesn't just meet people where they are geographically, of course. It also meets people where they are spiritually. Now, my guess is that most of us know this, but tax collectors were not really looked upon all that favorably, right? Most people didn't love tax collectors. Uh, they didn't like them because, well, you know, they were, they were taking their money. We, we like good roads, but we'd rather not pay taxes, right? There's so many places to go with that, but I'm not going to. Right? But not only that, of course, in that day and age, not only did they not like it because it was, you know, it was their money, they didn't like it because they were working for the Romans and the Romans were the enemy, right? So they were also angry about that fact. And not only did they not like it because they were taking their money, not only did they not like it because they were, you know, working for the enemy, they didn't like it because oftentimes tax collectors were taking even more money than what they actually needed or were supposed to take just so they can live more lavishly, right? Just like Zacchaeus, if you remember that story. I'm not gonna ask you to sing that song, because you guys did such a poor job of singing the other one. But you know the story perhaps, right? And so, so, so there was really no great love. And yet Jesus met him right there. Now, sometimes we don't, I, I feel like we kind of think, well, sure. But Jesus can love anyone, right? And well, he, he's Jesus and he always sees the good in people. Or, or he looks at the life at life and everyone with kind of rose colored glasses. And that's why it's easy for him to do that. He, that's not exactly true. Jesus understood people. In fact, just four chapters earlier, not long before, Jesus, he's looking at the tax collectors and here's, here's what he says, actually. He's talking to some of his followers. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Jesus is throwing the tax collectors under the bus. Because he knows that many of the tax collectors, at least, are not really good people. He understands that. He knows that they're not going to love him back more often than not. And yet, what does Jesus do in spite of that? Jesus goes and loves them. And that, I hate to tell you this, but that is good news, not just for tax collectors. That is good news for all of us. Because what it reveals is that our, or that Jesus-shaped love is not performance-driven 
love. It is not based on how good or how bad or how beautiful or how talented or how wealthy or how poor. It is not based on any of those things. Instead, it is based on who God is. Augustine, long ago, 1600 or years ago, or if not longer, Augustine said, by loving us, God makes us lovable. By loving us, God makes us lovable. In other words, we are lovable not because of anything that we can do or not do. We are lovable because God is the God who loves us. Now that doesn't mean that we don't ever change. As you see with Zacchaeus, as we'll talk about next week a little bit more, as God loved Zacchaeus more, he was made brighter and more beautiful. But it does mean that before you can do anything, before you can try to get to just the right place where you think then God will finally love you, before any of those things, God already loves you right where you are. And we need to hear that because so much of the love, I've said this before, but I have to keep repeating it because I know that I struggle with remembering it, is this, before you can do anything in a world that always is telling you that you are worth whatever you can do for somebody else or even for yourself, Jesus says, I love you right where you are, not where I hope you are someday and not even where you hope you are someday. I love you right where you are. And here's why that's significant. Not only because of the fact that, that, that we need to understand that, but that we will never be able to love others like that until we have received that ourselves. I have seen far too many people who try to do the work of Jesus and who have not yet actually received that love themselves and it will make you dry and bitter. Only after we really understand that Jesus loves us right where we are, geographically, emotionally, spiritually, right where we are, only then can we actually begin to love in a Jesus-shaped way way. There's something else about Jesus-shaped love that I want you to see, and it's the reason why I wanted to both read John 3, 16 and 17 and the Gospel of Matthew. You see, John 3, 16 and 17 is a beautiful passage, and it talks about earth shattering, world-changing kind of love. That when Jesus came, this is what we believe as followers of Jesus, when Jesus came to this earth, that everything changed in our neighborhoods, in our community, and our world. It is world-changing. It is earth-shattering kind of love. This is what John's trying to do. He's shouting it out with the megaphone. He is saying, this is incredible. Everyone should know that the world will never be the same again. But then we see Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? He's talking to some guy in a tax collecting booth. He's eating with people and listening to them. The world will never be the same. When this Jesus comes into town, everything is going to change. And I mean everything. What gives? 
I mean, most of us, this is what we want. This is the exciting stuff. In our kind of celebrity-driven, event-driven kind of world, we want to know we're making a massive change. Let's get a GoFundMe. Let's get something up on Facebook. Let's hear about these incredible changes. Let's have these massive drives. We are going to change everything. And that is wonderful, and that is great. And yet, Jesus himself, when he was here for the vast majority of his time, he was eating with people. He was listening to them. He was noticing them when no one else did. That most of the earth-shattering, world-changing love to which Jesus is being talked about here happens in these small little acts of love. And as a people who are called to be Jesus-shaped love, we can never forget this. One of my favorite sermons or, or scripture passages, of course, to preach on at weddings um, um, is, uh, is the love chapter, right? 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's a beautiful passage, and I, I love the passage. I want you to hear it because I don't want you to read it. I want you just to hear. This is Paul speaking, okay? You ready? Here it goes. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all of my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I mean, that is poetic. That is Shakespeare kind of language, is it not? I mean, as I say at wedding sermons, this is the kind of thing that makes the heart soar, that says we're going to change the world with this kind of love, right? And then what does Paul do immediately after this? What does Paul say? Paul then says this as he looks my, perhaps at Jesus's life, love is patient and kind. Love is not envious, boastful, arrogant, or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It isn't irritable or resentful. It, it bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. This we love. It seems quick, easy, fun. But what Jesus understood is that the only way to get there is if we are willing to do the things that Jesus or that Paul talks about of being patient and kind and enduring. 
story that I oftentimes like to tell at weddings is a story that uh, I've told here a few years ago about my first trip to Ikea. Maybe you remember it. It was, it was a great trip. It was in Schaumburg, Illinois, in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, and I was really excited. I didn't know that much about Ikea, but everyone told me it was cool, and I mean, this was before I got married, so maybe 14, 13, 14 years ago, and I was so young then, and so, so, so I went, and I mean, I'm telling you, it was amazing. I don't know. I mean, the showcase, it was like, it was like the showcases. Each place you would go, there was this living room that looked amazing, and you would just see this cool bookshelf, and, and the coffee table, and the sofa, and it looked so good, and then you'd, you'd go look at the kitchen, and it was so kind of modern and fresh, and then you would, you, you would look, even the bathroom is impressive, right? You're like, wow, I could use a bathroom like this. And it was amazing. And you just kept thinking, wow, at least I did. If I had these things, I would be so much cooler than I am right now. And even though it may not have been world changing, it was going to change my world. I knew it. I mean, it was really cool. And I was so excited. And so, you know, back in the day, at least what you do is you would just take all these little tabs, you know, A17, B6. Okay, you get one of everything. And, and then you go, went down in Schaumburg, you went down this really, really long escalator. I mean, really far down. And it kept going all the way down into the bowels of Ikea. And so you, you finally got down and just about the time when you finally, you know, because it was like the ceiling and so you're kind of looking and as you're going down and all of a sudden there it was. Row after row after row. Not of my dreams, but boxes. Just boxes. And if that wasn't depressing enough, when you took it home and you opened it up, it wasn't like a pop-out book right? Where you would open it up and all of a sudden everything, oh, no, 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 right? It was just boards and, and, and hundreds, and I mean hundreds of bolts and nails and things. I don't even know what you call them. It was so depressing. And then a manual that has no words. And what you begin to realize is that this picture that is so wonderful and is important because it causes your heart to soar. It gives you an image of what can be a goal for to which you can shoot. That it only happens as you begin to turn the screws in, as you begin to slowly put things together. It only happens through little things, little acts of love like being patient or kind or simply enduring. When I became a pastor, when I was training, I had things that I was looking forward to. Uh, preaching, um, you know, being able to kind of moderate session and, and help lead, help us to kind of get out into our community. One of the things I never really thought about was the reality that I was also, as a part of being a pastor, I was going to journey alongside of people who were going through difficult times. At first, honestly, I didn't like it that much because it was very depressing. Uh, you know, I was kind of, you know, kind of youngerish, and I didn't, I didn't have parents who, who were kind of on their, you know, who were dying or weren't doing well. I hadn't really kind of battled much of that at all. And so I, 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 it, was, it was just kind of depressing. But the more that I've done it, the more I've begun to see actually in many ways kind of what a gift it is to be able to journey alongside of people in the midst of their struggles. 
oftentimes it's, it's journeying alongside people as they see their loved ones, maybe a parent or a sibling, a friend, a spouse, even a child. Kind of endure weeks or months of year or years of a disease that oftentimes may lead to death. And I've realized that those moments are never really happy moments. But they can be holy moments. As I was thinking about that this week, I was reminded of a gentleman here at ZPC. He's been married now for almost 50 years. Um, And about seven years ago now, his wife was diagnosed um, with Alzheimer's. And so... For four years after that, he, he, you know, he kept, you know, he, he was taking care of her in their home and he was caring for her and loving her. And then about three years ago, uh, they said, look, the family said, you can't keep doing this. This is, this is killing you. You need, to, you need to put her into some kind of care unit. And so he did that. But of course, he continues to go there. And whenever I see him, and he is here pretty much every week, he's always dressed to the nines. And when he walks in, there is a part of my heart that just absolutely breaks. Because I know what he has to endure all through the week. There's also a part of me that wants to pick him up and put him on my shoulder and march him around and say, look what this guy is doing. Look what he is doing. This is amazing. I asked him a little while back. I said, can you tell me what you do? When, when you go in with your wife, what do you do? And he said, well, he said, usually I, I'll sit down next to her. And then I, I'll hold her hand. And then she starts to rub my arm. And he said, I look at her and I say, I love you. And she looks at me and says, not as much as I love you. And as I was thinking about that reality, as I was thinking about those words and knowing that those are words that have to have been said for much more than seven years, those are words that have been said for almost 50 years. I thought, this... This is Jesus-shaped love, a love that says, I am going to keep being with you even if you never remember. And I love weddings. I think they're amazing. I think they are beautiful. But they are not the testimony to love that this particular scene is. And as I think about the difference between those things, as I think about, yes, the wonderful event of a wedding that is beautiful, here's what I want us also to always be mindful of, that Jesus-shaped love is a love that not only begins wonderfully, but it is a love that endures in incredibly small acts. And my life has been changed over the last 12 years because of how many different small acts of love like that I have seen people do, whether it's 
caring for a, a spouse who is dying, whether it's simply giving someone a ride from downtown uh, Indianapolis here, a homeless person as will be happening this week, whether it's welcoming a refugee, whether it's simply going into a coworker spot who you know is struggling and being willing to listen or pray with him or her, whatever it is, what I know is this, that while big events are great, while big celebrity-driven kinds of love may be fine, I want you to know that Jesus-shaped love is made up of little small opportunities that each of us have wherever it is that we walk, wherever it is we work, wherever it is we live or play, that we are always given opportunities to do small acts of love that no one may notice and that no one may even remember. But this is Jesus-shaped love. My hope and my prayer, sisters and brothers in Christ, is that we will be a people who are able to engage in those small acts of love, believing and trusting that in so doing will they lead to the earth-shattering, world-changing love to which we are told in John. And in so doing, will we reflect the one who came not to condemn the world, but in order to save it. Sisters and brothers in Christ, that is Jesus-shaped love. And that is why we are here. Amen.